Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over 3 Nephi, chapters 12 through 16. And one of Christ's first sermons while in the flesh was known as the Sermon on the Mount. And when Christ visited the children of Israel on the American continent, after educating his disciples and the gathered people about baptism and how to come unto him, he gave the very same sermon. Harold B. Lee said, Christ came not only into the world to make an atonement for the sins of mankind, but to set an example before the world of the standard of perfection of God's law and of obedience to the Father. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Master has given us somewhat of a revelation of his own character, which was perfect, or what might be said to be an autobiography, every syllable of which he had written down in deeds and in so doing has given us a blueprint for our own lives. So we start in chapter 12. In verse 1, about halfway down, it says, Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. How blessed we are to have apostles and prophets on the earth today that we can turn to as living witnesses of the Savior. Elder Holland said the apostolic and prophetic foundation of the church was to bless in all times, but especially in times of adversity or danger. Times when we might feel like children, confused or disoriented, perhaps a little fearful. Times in which the devious hand of men or the maliciousness of the devil would attempt to unsettle or mislead. Against such times as come in our modern day, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve are commissioned by God and sustained by you as prophets, seers, and revelators. Such a foundation in Christ was and is always to be a protection. In such days as we are now in, and will more or less always be in, the storms of life shall have no power over you. So the first thing that Christ does is he establishes the fact that he has apostles and prophets who speak for him in his name and have the authority to perform ordinances, saving ordinances, in his name. And then Christ jumps into the Beatitudes. And Webster says that the definition of a Beatitude is a state of utmost bliss. The Bible Dictionary says rather than being isolated statements, the Beatitudes are interrelated and progressive in their arrangement. This is what President Harold B. Lee taught. He said that the Beatitudes embody the constitution for a perfect life. Four of them have to do with our individual selves, and four have to do with man's social relations with others. So, for example, the self are poor in spirit, those that mourn, they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, and pure in heart. And in dealing with others, we need to be meek, merciful, peacemakers, and accept persecution. So let's break those down a little bit more. In verse 3, it says, it talks about being poor in spirit. Harold B. Lee continues, he says, The master said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, of course, means those who are spiritually needed, who feel so impoverished spiritually that they reach out with great yearning for help. Every one of us, if we would reach perfection, must one time ask ourselves this question, what lack I yet, if we would commence our climb upward on the highway to perfection? An interesting note in verse 3 is that the saying, who come unto me, is not in the New Testament. However, it definitely applies to this beatitude and to all of them. And it is also relevant because it means baptism. That's what we have to do is we have to come unto him to be baptized as well. And by the way, 
he mentions baptism 19 times in this sermon. Verse 4 talks about mourning. And Spencer J. Condy said, The Beatitudes may be viewed as a recipe for righteousness with incremental steps, beginning with the poor in spirit who come under Christ. The next step in the celestial direction is to mourn, especially for our sins. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Verse 5 talks about being meek, and President Kimball said, If the Lord was meek and lowly and humble, then to become humble one must do what he did in boldly denouncing evil, bravely advancing righteous works, courageously meeting every problem, becoming the master of himself and the situations about him, and being near oblivious to personal credit. Humility is not pretentious, presumptuous, nor proud. It is not weak, vacillating, nor servile. Humble and meek properly suggest virtues, not weaknesses. They suggest a consistent mildness of temper and an absence of wrath and passion. It is not servile submissiveness. It is not cowed not, nor frightened. How does one get humble? To me, one must constantly be reminded of his dependence. On whom dependent? On the Lord. How remind oneself? By real, constant, worshipful, grateful prayer. That brings us to five, which is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And Sister Dew said, our ability to hear spiritually is linked to our willingness to work at it. President Hinckley has often said that the one way he knows to get anything done is to get on his knees and plead for help and then get on his feet and go to work. That combination of faith and hard work is the consummate curriculum for learning the language of the Spirit. The Savior taught, Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Hungering and thirsting translate to sheer spiritual labor, worshiping in the temple, repenting, becoming increasingly pure, forgiving and seeking forgiveness, and earnest fasting and prayer all increase our receptivity to the Spirit. Spiritual work works and is the key to learning to hear the voice of the Lord. In verse 8, we talk about the pure in heart. Joseph B. Worthland said, To be without guile is to be pure in heart, an essential virtue of those who would be counted among the true followers of Christ. If we are without guile, we are honest, true, and righteous. These are the attributes of deity and are required of saints. Those who are honest are fair and truthful in their speech, straightforward in their dealings, free of deceit and above stealing misrepresentation, or any other fraudulent action. Honesty is of God. Dishonesty is of the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. Righteousness means living a life that is in harmony with the laws, principles, and ordinances of the gospel. Verse 9 talks about being peacemakers. Bruce R. McConkie said, In the full sense, only those who believe and spread the fullness of the gospel are peacemakers within the perfect meaning of this beatitude. The gospel is the message of peace to all mankind. Children of God, those who have been adopted into the family of God as a result of their devotion to the truth, by such a course they become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I love it in verse 13, and it talks about the salt of the earth and that we need to become the salt of the earth. And in the Mosaic sacrificial ritual, salt was a reminder that we should remember and preserve our covenants with God. Carlos A. Acey said, When men are called into mine everlasting gospel and covenant with an everlasting covenant, they are accounted as the salt of the earth and the savor of men. 
They are called to be the saver of men, and that's according to Doctrine and Covenants 101, 39 through 40. The word savor denotes taste, pleasing flavor, interesting quality, and high repute. A world-renowned chemist told me that salt will not lose its savor with age. Savor is lost through mixture and contamination. Similarly, priesthood power does not dissipate with age. It, too, is lost through mixture and contamination. Flavor and quality flee a man when he contaminates his mind with unclean thoughts, desecrates his mouth by speaking less than the truth, and misapplies his strength in performing evil acts. I would offer these simple guidelines, especially to the young men, as the means to preserve one's savor. If it is not clean, do not think it. If it is not true, do not speak it. If it is not good, do not do it. Verses 14 through 16 talk about letting our light shine. And isn't that what this whole sermon is really all about? That we need to do all we can to show our light, to let others see what shines through the veil of mortality. And to do as it says in verse 16, Therefore let your light so shine before this people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Verse 17, the law of Moses is fulfilled. And he talks more about this also again in chapter 15. But Bruce R. McConkie said, Jesus came to restore that gospel fullness, which men had enjoyed before the day of Moses, before the time of the lesser order. Obviously, he did not come to destroy what he himself had revealed to Moses any more than a college professor destroys arithmetic by revealing the principles of integral calculus to his students. Jesus came to build on the foundation Moses laid. By restoring the fullness of the gospel, he fulfilled the need for adherence to the terms and conditions of the preparatory gospel. No one any longer needed to walk by the light of the moon, for the sun had risen in all its splendor. Essentially, the law of Moses was there to help people look forward to the atonement of Jesus Christ. And now the things that we do and the sacrifices we make are to help us remember the atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, what does he ask us to do? In verse 19, it talks about having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And we've talked about that in other podcasts. I'll let you go over that. Verse 22 talks about being angry with your brother. And in the New Testament, it says angry without a cause, but not here. I think it's best just to avoid anger altogether as we are adept at coming up with good reasons to be angry or to be offended. Verses 27 and 29 talk about avoiding lust. And this is what Richard G. Scott had to say. He said, love is defined by the Lord, elevates, protects, respects, and enriches another. It motivates one to make sacrifices for another. Satan promotes counterfeit love, which is lust. It is driven by a hunger to appease personal appetite. One who practices this deception cares little for the pain and destruction caused another. While often camouflaged by flattering words, its motivation is self-gratification. In verse 30, we talk about take up your cross. Neil A. Maxwell said the daily taking up of the cross means daily denying ourselves the appetites of the flesh. By emulating the master who endured temptations but gave no heed unto them, we too can live in a world filled with temptations such as are common to man. Of course, Jesus noticed the tremendous temptations that came to him, but he did not process and reprocess them. Instead, he rejected them promptly. If we entertain temptations, soon they begin entertaining us. Turning these unwanted lodgers away at the doorstep of the mind is one way of giving no heed. 
Besides, these would-be lodgers are actually barbarians who, if admitted, can be evicted only with great trauma. Verses 31 and 32 talk about divorce, and we won't talk about that in the interest of time. But we know it's a plague, but we also know there are legitimate reasons as well. And Bruce R. McConkie said that we are not bound by this law at this time. In the next several verses, Christ outlines the law of Moses and talks about how to take it to a higher sphere. And finally, in verse 48, he says, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. And if you haven't done so yet, I would refer you over to Elder Holland's talk about be therefore perfect eventually. Joseph Smith described becoming perfect as a ladder, and President Kimball said he has no patience with people who use the phrase, no one is perfect, to justify their actions. In other words, we need to be climbing that ladder higher and higher, and we can't use the excuse that nobody's perfect because we can be higher up on the ladder than we are. And now we move into chapter 13. And chapter 13 is all about how we need to live the gospel for the right reasons. In other words, we need to help ourselves and others become more like the Savior, but for that reason alone, not for the praise of men. We need to give freely and we need to give in secret so that only our Father in heaven knows. Verse 7, he talks about how to pray and communicate with Father in heaven so that we're not heard by others. In verses 9 through 13, he gives what most commonly know this as the Lord's Prayer. And it's basically a pattern or how to teach us for prayer. It's not something that we need to memorize and regurgitate as, as one of our prayers. But it is a definite pattern for prayer where he teaches us the steps and also the things that we need to think about and pray for to be grateful for, and to ask. In verses 19 through 24, he talks about seeking the kingdom before riches. This is what Elder Oaks said. He said, The Savior taught that we should not lay up treasures on earth, but should lay up treasures in heaven. In light of the ultimate purpose of the great plan of happiness, I believe that the ultimate treasures on earth and in heaven are our children and our posterity. And I was thinking about this chapter a lot recently as I've been studying a lot of the prophecies of the last days and preparing for those last days and and some of the strife that's going to go on and and making sure that my family is well taken care of. And one of the things that I read and talked about was when there's an economic collapse, you should invest in gold. And the thought came to me, yes, gold would be great if if that's a commodity that, that can be exchanged, but really having enough food, having enough water having a community of fellow saints that we can rely on and help grow is the more important asset that we can store. So I hope we're we're considering that and, and working through that. And I know it says in verse 34, take no thought for tomorrow, but remember that that was directed to the apostles specifically at that time. And there are times when he will tell us that, and and those are great moments when he does. But right now we do need to be prepared Four things to come. In chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Christ talks about judging. And this is what Elder Oaks said. He said, I've been puzzled that some scriptures command us not to judge, and others instruct us that we should judge and even tell us how to do it. But as I have studied these passages, I have become convinced that these seemingly contradictory directions are consistent when we view them with the perspective of eternity. The key is to understand that there are two kinds of judging. 
final judgments, which we are forbidden to make, and intermediate judgments, which we are directed to make. But upon righteous principles, first, a righteous judgment must, by definition, be intermediate. Second, a righteous judgment will be guided by the Spirit of the Lord, not by anger, revenge, jealousy, or self-interest. Third, to be righteous in intermediate judgment must be within our stewardship. Fourth, we should, if possible, refrain from judging until we have adequate knowledge of the facts. Chapter 14, verse 3 says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? And I think that's one of the more wise pieces of counsel in this chapter right here for us today to consider. Because it is such a generation right now of you should be doing that and you should be doing this and this is not right and I'm calling you out on this. Let's be aware of that, that we all have beams in our own eyes and not to focus on the motes that are in other people's eyes. Verse 7 says, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. President Faust said, Access to our Creator through our Savior is surely one of the great privileges and blessings of our lives. No earthly authority can separate us from direct access to our Creator. There can never be a mechanical or electronic failure when we pray. There is no limit on the number of times or how long we can pray each day. There is no quota of how many needs we wish to pray for in each prayer. We need not to go through secretaries or make an appointment to reach the throne of grace. He is reachable at any time and at any place. Verse 15 warns us of false prophets. Elder Ballard said, Let us be aware of false prophets and false teachers, both men and women, who are self-appointed declarers of the doctrines of the church and who seek to spread their false gospel and attract followers by sponsoring symposia, books, and journals whose contents challenge fundamental doctrines of the church. Beware of those who speak and publish in opposition to God's true prophets and who actively proselyte others with reckless disregard for the eternal well-being of those whom they seduce. They set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Now we move into chapter 15. We go back to the fulfillment of the law of Moses, because there have been some who were astonished at the changes. And there are always people who have a hard time with change. And, and remember that the doctrine was not changed, but built upon. The Nephites, for the most part, understood this better than most. I mean, they had listened to the prophets, and the prophets had prophesied that this law would be fulfilled. In fact, they had to be corrected 33 years earlier at Christ's coming because there were some who thought that the law had been fulfilled at that point, but it hadn't been. Elder Holland said it is crucial to understand that the law of Moses was overlaid upon and thereby included many basic parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which had existed before it. It was never intended to be something apart or separated from, and certainly not something antagonistic to, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Its purpose was never to have been different from the higher law. Both were to bring people to Christ. Thus, Jesus could say, For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled, but the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. What is that covenant that he's referencing there in verse 8? and which Elder Holland just mentioned. 
It's the Abrahamic covenant. And I want to review the Abrahamic covenant. And, I, and one way that I remember it is to remember P's or the, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Number one is posterity. Number two, property. And number three, priesthood. So first of all, it's eternal posterity as we become fathers and mothers in heaven to spirit children whom we send to mortal worlds just as our heavenly parents did for us. Property or inheritance of both the promised lands and worlds to create. And priesthood or the power to seal these promises and the ability to create. That's what makes up the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 12, he says, Ye are my disciples, and ye are a light unto this people, who are a remnant of the house of Joseph. And here he's talking to the Nephites, who are descendants of Joseph, who is the birthright son. And they have a double inheritance through Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim being the birthright son in that situation. Their birthright is the new and promised land where the new Jerusalem will be built, or modern-day America. And Orson F. Whitney said another name for America authorized by the Book of Mormon is the land of Joseph, referred to by the patriarch Joseph in blessings to his twelve sons and by the prophet Moses in his farewell benediction upon the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob's allusion to Joseph as a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall was fulfilled in the migration of Lehi and his companions from Asia to America over the Pacific Ocean. It is hardly necessary to add that one of the main features of these western continents are those mighty mountain ranges, the Andes and the Rockies, well termed by the Hebrew patriarch the Everlasting Hills, nature's depositories for the precious things of the earth, gold, silver, and other minerals, and for the precious things in heaven, the sacred records already discovered, and others that are yet to come forth. Brothers and sisters, many of us are also from the tribe of Ephraim, and this is our birthright as well. And with that birthright comes a responsibility to proclaim the gospel and to gather in the other sheep. And that's what he starts talking about next. He goes into a deeper conversation about other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, which continues into chapter 16. If you have ever worked with sheep, you really question if this is a positive comparison, if that comparing us to sheep is really positive. When I was in college, I worked at the Artificial Heart Research Lab, and we had a pen of sheep that we took care of. And let me tell you that these animals are dumb, they're willful, and they make a constant mess. They butt heads, they follow each other around, and and luckily for us, we have a shepherd who, who loves us and not just a sheep herder or some college intern who does not. The other sheep, of course, are the scattered tribes of Israel. The Nephites understood, but the Jews did not. It is Ephraim's main charge to gather Israel. In verse 4, we read, and, it, and I command you that ye shall write these sayings after I am gone, that if it so be that my people at Jerusalem, they who have seen me, and been with me in my ministry, do not ask the Father in my name, that they may receive a knowledge of you by the Holy Ghost, and also of the other tribes whom they know not of, that these sayings which ye shall write shall be kept and shall be manifest unto the Gentiles, that through the fullness of the Gentiles, the remnant of their seed, who shall be scattered forth upon the face of the earth because of their unbelief, may be brought in, or may be brought to a knowledge of me, their Redeemer. Bruce R. McConkie said, We have heretofore identified the Jews as both the nationals of the kingdom of Judah and as their lineal descendants. 
All this without reference to tribal affiliation. And we have said, within the usage of terms, that all other people are Gentiles, including the lost and scattered remnants of the kingdom of Israel, in whose veins the precious blood of him whose name was Israel does in fact flow. Thus Joseph Smith of the tribe of Ephraim, the chief and foremost tribe of Israel itself, was the Gentile by whose hand the Book of Mormon came forth. And the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who have the gospel, and who are of Israel by blood descent, are the Gentiles who carry salvation to the Lamanites and to the Jews. Christ confirms the prophecies that the Gentiles will be converted and gather Israel. That time is now, brothers and sisters, and we are fulfilling that at this very moment. In verses 17 through 20, it says, And then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled, which say, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eye of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Brothers and sisters, if we're to be part of Ephraim, if we're going to gather Israel, we have to follow the watchmen. And the watchmen are our prophet and the apostles. They are here to lead us in that charge. And how blessed we are that next week we can listen to these leaders in general conference. And I pray that each of us will pay attention to what they're trying to say and help us and guide us. And as they share the words of Christ, that we will feel that testimony of the Savior through the power of the Holy Ghost. And that is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thank you and have a blessed day.